Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I have with me Ellie Mistal, also from Above the Law. How are you? I am dumb, turns no. out. I bought a fancy new mic so I could podcast from home. And I bought a fancy new mic stand so I could actually uh, have it on my desk or I could stand up like I'm doing a rock concert. And I forgot to get the interface that hooks the microphone up to my actual computer. Ooh. So you wait to stand up. You, you were con, you were considering podcasting standing. That's that's yes. taking that whole new standing desk trend to a new level. It gets my uh, my my baritone more engaged um, when I when I podcast. So I was going to do it. So I, was, I wanted the option of doing it standing, but I did not leave myself the option of doing it on my computer. Which uh, so I'm coming to you via my webcam, which is not great. All right, so that's why it sounds like you're in the bottom of a well or something like that. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, okay. So nobody alert anyone to go save baby Ellie. I sound like this because I'm dumb. This is my punishment. Okay. Well, um, that's not what I'm pissed off about today, Joe. Oh, well, okay. I mean, I don't know how you could be angry, you know, because we've just come out of a holiday weekend. I don't know why you would be angry, but here we go. Well, because coming out of a holiday weekend, one of the things you learn when you have kids is that they want to go outside and play in various water sports during the hot summer days. And that's fine. We live in the suburbs. We're fully, you know, water sports capable. We've got the sprinklers. We've got the slip and slide. And we have the kiddie pool. This is the fifth summer that I will have spent in the suburbs. And it is the fifth time that I have tried to find some implement that would simply heat my kids' kiddie pool so that the water isn't freezing when they get into it. I've tried solar lily pads, I've tried covers, I've tried everything that I can think of, and still, regardless of what I try, when I go outside and dip my my foot in the kiddie pool, it is freezing hose water. And my kids are going to do it because they're kids and whatever, but after like 10 minutes, they're, you know, looking like they're about to die of hypothermia. What color is your hose? Green. Interesting. I will say that uh, there's some, if you were to get like a long black hose and curl it up and leave it in the sun such that the water's flowing. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, I think that I helps. Have, that's the only thing that's helped is, is I string my green hose like down the length of my driveway, turn it on and then turn it off. And the water that is left in the hose um, sometimes comes out relatively warm. That's that's it. And that's fine, but like that's that's not enough. That's not enough to actually fill the pool, right? And it just seems to me that we live in the 21st century. There should there should be some way. Some by the way, non, you know, carbon footprint leaving way to warm the goddamn pool. Yeah. But there's not. Well, I mean, this this seems like the real the real crisis that the that the combined might of all of us dealing with climate change should focus on is Jay Inslee cool. needs to get his ass on that. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll heed that call. Um, <laughs> Cause he ain't going to be president. 
Well, no, I was just saying he could heed that call, but, you know, there's also the possibility that he might have missed the call. Oh! Know where I'm going here. Which brings us, as always, to our ad read. Are you missing calls? Are you spread too thin? Interruptions kill your productivity, but clients demand a quick response. The U.S.-based professional receptionists at Smith AI help law firms screen new clients and schedule appointments by phone and website chat. Plus, Smith AI integrates with your software, including Clio and LawPay. Plans start at just $60 per month. Get a free trial at smith.ai. Boom. Yeah, that was, uh, that was seamless there. So, all right. So, well, one thing we'd like to discuss, um, you are, you know, you have a piece uh, that uh, yeah, may not be out quite yet, but is about to come out, a long piece about the court system uh, in the nation. So, so I want to talk to you about the court system. This time, it's almost as though you're the guest rather than the host of the show, because you're the one with the big piece. But we'll talk just generally, not necessarily specifically about your piece, but generally about what's going on. Yeah, so I, I do have a, a long-form piece coming out in the nation. Uh, hopefully you can uh, check it out after you listen to this uh, podcast. And it's about Trump's overall effect on the courts, not the Supreme Court. Everybody writes about the Supreme Court. Everybody knows Neil Gorsuch over Merrick Garland. Everybody knows there's an alleged attempted rapist on the court that the Republicans are very proud of. Everybody is waiting, you know, getting updates from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Fitbit um, hoping that she defies mortality um, a little bit longer. The real effect of Trump, Mitch McConnell's, and generally the federal society's um, impact through the Trump administration has not just been on the Supreme Court. It's been on all of the lower courts. Um, I'm talking about the circuit courts. I'm talking about district courts. Um, this spring, um, the Trump administration crossed the 100 nominee threshold. They have confirmed over 100 um, lower court judges um, to the bench. That is a record pace for two years into a presidential administration. Of those 138 have been confirmed on the circuit courts, um, which again is a record pace by comparison at the same time. Barack Obama had only confirmed 19 judges. And it's a huge problem that's going to be with us for the rest of our lives, most likely. Um, Trump is pushing the judges forward. They're arch-conservative judges. And God forbid, if he gets another term, he's going to be able to completely flip, not just some circuit. I mean, he's already flipped the third circuit. But if he gets a second term, he's most likely going to be able to flip circuits like the 11th, the 4th, potentially the 9th, to say nothing of the fact of the way that he is deepening and more reddening um, circuits that are already conservative, like the Fifth Circuit or the Tenth Circuit. Well, I, question on that. No, I haven't looked at the numbers, but is that is that actually true? I mean, the a lot of why this paste has been so blistering is that it's not really reflective of what one can do in two years. It's what one can do when a backlog of vacancies exist because there had been a backlog created when a bunch of vacancies under the Obama administration had never been filled. So while that's allowed them to kind of do basically double duty for these first couple of years, uh, if a f another term were to happen, are there, are there that number of people that are 
poised to leave the bench that would actually allow that? Or is this, at some point here, we're about to hit that drop-off where they're not dealing with vacancies from six years ago anymore, and they're once again back to just the natural order of you know the Grim Reaper's reach upon people. Right. And you, you, are, you are right to point out that the reason for this pace has been that McConnell held so many seats open during the Obama administration. Again, everybody remembers Merrick Garland, but Merrick Garland was mainly the capstone, was merely the capstone um, of a long-term plan that McConnell put in place to thwart Democratic appointees throughout the Obama administration. Um, some people remember that we used to have a filibuster, not just for Supreme Court nominees, but also for district court nominees, for lower court nominees. Um, and the reason why Harry Reid um, got rid of the filibuster for lower court nominees is that even as minority leader, McConnell was blocking Obama appointments simply because there were Obama appointments. There was no other, you know, there was no deeper reason about their qualification. He was just blocking them because they were Obama appointments. Um, and so we changed the filibuster, but a little bit late in the game, the Democrats weren't, even with the change in the filibuster, the Democrats didn't exactly have a hundred people that they were just ready to go out and nominate. Um, and so that when McConnell took back over the Senate um, in 2014, um, he then went back to blocking all of these lower court appointees. So Joe, you're absolutely right that part of the reason for the record pace has been that there are so many positions to fill. And you are right that the pace of nominees should slow down at some point, of confirmations should slow down at some point. But we're just talking about two years. So now with this kind of two-year head start, if Trump has six more years to put conservatives on the bench, there are other circuits that he could flip. And I think, again, especially the fourth um, is looking – could could go, right? Um, that's, the, that's the next one we're worried about. He's already flipped the third. Um, and, and then there's the, the issue with the, the circuits that are – already conservative, making them just more and more conservative. Trust me, replacing, and this is really what the piece is about, replacing a Reagan judge with a Trump judge, you know, is 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 like replacing your uh, uh, poodle with a pit bull. Yeah, I, and that's why I, I'm contesting some of the rhetoric of this uh, of this po of this article and, and your logic because I've always been queasy about phrases like flipping courts and all because I think that flit that fits into a kind of cynical and long-term destructive view of courts as political creatures as opposed to judicial ones um, and as much in, in a lot of ways I'm one of those people who believes in the in the language that John Roberts says, but not how John Roberts actually acts, uh, that we should have some kind of grounding in the actual law and not be ideology machines. But what you hit on, and why I don't necessarily like the flipping language, but what I did like is the way in which you phrased it at the end, it's, there was a day when jurists from different nominated by different parties didn't necessarily mean a major ideological shift. There are Reagan judges who were altogether reasonable on all kinds of questions. Uh, and it wasn't a game about just finding somebody who said what you like. Um, judge Posner is a Reagan judge, was a Reagan judge. That's a person who was, you know, 
right of center, but incredibly bound by what, you know, reading of precedent and law actually means. Uh, by contrast, John Bush, for instance, a Sixth Circuit judge that has been put up in this administration, is just a guy who wrote an anti-gay blog uh, and therefore gets to be a Sixth Circuit judge. So that, so I just wanted to be like the whole like flipping language, uh, I, while not good, I think it is very important to remember that this isn't, this isn't normal uh, as far as how previous partisan administrations approached a lot of these jobs. We can we can talk a lot about about Roberts and his judicial philosophy and whether that makes him a Republican judge, a conservative judge, or merely a judge. I obviously think that his policies and his 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 jurisprudence show him to be more of a Republican judge than anything else. His his rule is basically that Republicans get to win elections. I mean that's what he's trying to accomplish on the Supreme Court. As you start to look down on through the lower courts, what you find is that the people who make it to the Supreme Court, the John Robertses, the Neil Gorsuches, um, have refined their partisan hackery um, to such a point where it is elegant, right? It is it is defensible almost. Um, you know, I'm I would I could easily spend the rest of my life arguing against Neil Gorsuch opinions, um, but it's hard to argue that he doesn't have an intellectual core um, when it comes to his decision making. That core is is rotten, but it's it's there. It's real, and you can almost respect him for his intellectual consistency. The kinds of judge, judges Trump is looking for um, are don't have that right. They're they're not a they don't have an intellectual core other than Republicans winning, and that is most elegantly, I guess, if you would, um, expressed by Brett Kavanaugh, whose entire career was based in the partisan hackery game. His entire career was based in partisan Republican politics, and now as he's on the Supreme Court. All we have seen from him, really, Ian Milheiser actually has a really good piece that came out a couple of weeks ago when you're listening to this, um, just looking back on Kavanaugh's first year on the court, all we can expect from Kavanaugh is Republican Party politics put in through the language of law. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a few things there. I, perhaps let's d dig into that. So Gorsuch, uh, this term, uh, managed to join uh, in some dissents with uh, some very liberal-leaning dissents uh, with, I believe he sided with Sotomayor on a case uh, in like a 7-2, where his position was much more from a libertarian bent, but he managed to agree with them. It, it struck me as though, like you said, there's a philosophy there uh, as opposed to a partisan world. It's interesting you suggest that there's a view towards finding partisan folks. I I wonder, do, do you think it's that they're just looking for one type or that they have basically two categories of folks that they're willing to draw from and that while Gorsuch may represent one kind that they like, they have another that is... And I think that I would put maybe a John Bush in that category, uh, not a, a libertarian, but a true believer in a philosophy that tends to align with them uh, versus the people who just are stone cold, I just vote for what I have on my voter card. Um, do you think that the Federalist Society is making those distinctions or happy with both kinds of those judges? I think there is a distinction, although I think, it, look, it's hard to say because 
the Federal Society has stopped inviting me to their meetings, right? They, <laughs> um, um, and, and so we, it, it's always hard to know who's pushing for what, where, why, and how, right? But in broad strokes, what you, I think you are right to say that the Federal Society wants two kinds of judges. One are the people who are hardcore originalists, hardcore textualists, um, who really, as I think you've actually said, Joe, um, th this is the danger of second wave originalism. Antonin Scalia at least understood that originalism was a means to an end. Neil Gorsuch and those types, um, they actually believe this shit. And they're at some level um, even more dangerous than the Scalia's of the past because they think this is actually a legitimate way to think about the law. So the Federal Society is definitely likes some of those judges, but they will also support um, judges who get to the right result, that result being the Republican result, by any means necessary. So they will support, sure, the Neil Gorsuch's of the world, but they'll also support people who are straight-up judicial activists, like Don Willett, um, who wants to go back to a Lochner-era approach of aggressively overturning um, acts of Congress um, just because he thinks that Congress reached the wrong political result. So the Federalists are willing to play both sides of this. Where you really get to see a difference is that Mitch McConnell is kind of only on one side, right? Like... Anybody that gets the right result is good for McConnell. He doesn't care if he gets the right result through racism or bigotry or homophobia or originalism, whatever. As long as you get to upholding Mitch McConnell's agenda, he's a fan of yours. The other thing that we have to talk about, and it's hard to talk about it because you, it, you'll see why. There, there's, the, there's the Federal Society and then there's the uber-Catholic wing of the Federal Society, right? Um, and the... Uber Catholics are unified and they end up being the ones who kind of promote and push, to me, the most radical and partisan of the judges um, who are willing to impose their own religious faith upon the rest of us. It is not an accident that six of the judges, if you count Neil Gorsuch, who was raised Catholic, um, are Catholic, right? That's not, that, that doesn't happen by happenstance in a country that's majority Protestant. Um, it's not an accident that Brett Kavanaugh got Kennedy's uh, job, and it's not an accident that the conservatives have, you know, rallied around the flag of Amy Coney Barrett, who is part of a Catholic cult-like organization um, called People of Promise, where they pledge lifelong oaths to Jesus and crap like that. It's not an accident that she is the one that the conservatives want to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg and finally do the hard work of overturning a woman's right to choose, right? So there's there are all of these kind of reasons why the Federalists and Mitch McConnell end up promoting certain judges, and only one reason is the intellectual heft of originalism and textualism, if you believe in that. This is the point where we point out that you you actually are Catholic, so that the the very know-nothing party sounding uh, of that was was not really, uh, you know, not really reflective. I wasn't trying to be anti-religious. Oh, I know. My christening name is Michael. I'm, I'm... Yeah, it, it was not far from the papists and the New World Order sending black helicopters. But, you know, I mean, I got where you were trying to go. Don't Diane Feinstein mean. 
all right, fair enough. So back to all of this. So you've got this this change, this kind of philosophical change, and you did raise a, a point that uh, you attributed to me, which is fair, because I have said it before, that there's a, a second wave issue, that certain ideologies are ideologies of convenience. They're written out. They usually end up getting somebody a book deal, and then they move on knowing that it's a fig leaf, and then another generation comes along who really believes it. Uh, and that that new generation uh, is where things get out of control. And I think there is something to be said for that. And it's where you see both extremes on one side and also the occasional break where you see a Gorsuch flip to the other side because uh, taking the the argument to its literal conclusion that uh, may not have been intended by the people who came up with it. Gorsuch is able to get to kind of, Gorsuch is your classic example of a guy who's able to get to the right conclusion for the wrong reasons. And everybody wants to laud him as some kind of intellectual stalwart who will sacrifice nothing uh, for his judicial philosophy. And people seem to think that that's a, a positive thing about him when actually it is that intellectual stubbornness that leads him to horrible outcomes more often than not, even though it sometimes leads him to relatively harmless dissents. So I want to go back to something earlier uh, because it's been an issue. It's obviously deeply involved in what you're writing about, and it's something that you know, I, I've had arguments uh, with you and others before, so I want to kind of unpack it a little bit. The filibuster, which you point out is is the instrument that both in its existence and its disappearance are largely responsible for these vacancies being held open and basically turning this two-year stretch into, in effect, a five-year stretch of nominations. The filibuster... Should we have a filibuster at this point in the Senate? And if not, is there some reform? Should it not exist? What's your take on how this device should function, if at all? The filibuster is a thing that is great for democracy if both sides are going to respect it. But once we see that both sides are not going to respect it, then your side respecting it when the other side doesn't is just fucking stupid. Well, I mean, obviously, it's the Democrats who who ultimately got rid of it. So they're the ones who got rid of it first. And that's what opened the door to where we are now. I mean, I've always kind of said that the purpose of the filibuster is because it's an anti-democratic, but it's anti-democratic to correct the anti-democratic nature of the Senate. Uh, the Senate is a, is a body that would allow, theoretically, 40% of the voters to have a 51 vote majority. And so therefore, there's this device that allows the people who are maybe may represent more voters uh, to slow down the Senate, even if they aren't in charge. I've always felt that the problem was we had a situation where the filibuster had changed from the perhaps if you're old enough, Mr. Smith goes to Washington style, somebody has to stand up and grind everything to a halt. And it's something that in the age of media can be very powerful. We saw what happened in Texas a few years ago when there was a filibuster over over abortion rights that became a huge story and people were able to, voters were able to have a way in of how they felt one way or the other. 
we in the U.S. Senate had changed that and reformed it such that filibusters didn't require anyone to give speeches for hours and hours. It just required someone to say, I choose to not let that go, and that would be enough to kill it. I always was of the opinion that that should have changed, and we should have forced people to get up and give their speeches, and that that would have the functional impact of slowing down its invocation. Instead, we just got rid of it, and... Uh, I totally agree. I, I, I think that, I, but, but, I, but I, I, because I agree, I go the other way then with you, right? Like, like, I totally agree that at the point where the filibuster stopped being a thing, that you had to stand up and talk about it, that you had to stand up and defend, that you had to stand up and get the rest of your, you know, 40 friends to defend with you. That when it, when it ceased becoming a tool of protest and when it became merely a procedural hangup, to me, that's when it really should have died, right? Because that makes it, as you're kind of saying, it just makes it now too easy for the minority party in the Senate to stop the entire operation of federal government. The filibuster was never supposed to be used in that way. It was supposed to be used when the minority uh, in the Senate had a serious objection that they were willing to go to the mattresses to defend, like at that point, we should all take a step back. We should all stop. You know, we should all consider what we're doing to our country if we have to drag along the minority kicking and screaming. That that that's a legitimate time to stop, pause, and think of a way to compromise. But see, and I, I I disagree with that at take on it. And this is also goes to the the alternative is we get rid of it, and now we have what we now have, which is a minority of voters reflected by the Senate seats uh, dominating everything. But you say like that it should be a sign of compromise. I, I actually don't necessarily think that's true. I thought one of the more powerful things about filibusters is for every Mr. Smith goes to Washington story, there's a Strom Thurmond talking for hours on end about seg keeping segregation. And that was also important because you allow them to make a spectacle of themselves. And that has value too. Like bad ideas being put in a spotlight has value too. And I thought that in this instance, hearing hours and hours about why Merrick Garland shouldn't be, and I guess that was that was after the majority, but insert some other good judge who was uh who was dinged in the past. Goodwin Lou. Yeah, there you go. Hours and hours of why we can't have this person uh would produce lots of good footage of well but they don't really have any good arguments. Like that's the sort of thing that can can t really turn a narrative and make it be this isn't about compromise. This is about people just throwing temper tantrums, and that's valuable too. And that was all stuff that I felt like a speaking filibuster could allow you to have both the pros and the cons. If people are forced to defend these things, it loses some luster. And or if they are really important things that deserve a good case, then, you know, give them that spotlight to make that case and maybe sway people that way. But but now that it's gone, what do you do, Joe? Now that it's gone, now that we don't have a speaking filibuster, what do you do? Are you, you're kind of in a binary situation, get rid of it? Or do you think that we still need to have it as a procedural check? No, I, I, I am, I'm not in a binary situation. I, I legitimately believe that the next Senate's rules should should not go ahead and have this nuclear option and no filibuster. It should be, we're going to use that power to pass a new rule by 51 votes that the filibuster exists, and it must be 
a company buys beaches, and uh, then you sell it to everybody as this is just the fair way to do it and move forward like that. And yes, people will attempt to screw around with it, but I think that's a that's a better precedent and one that kind of I, I've said an argument that you and I've had in the past throughout our writing and so on uh, that I think symbolizes a lot of the issues um, as far as how we view some similar issues slight from different angles is I'm a big believer in if something's broken, you don't say, well, now we're going, we're going the other way on it, or we're going to go further on it like that. I always am. So long as you're playing the, the two sides of a coin game, they'll find a way to win. You can, you have to take it outside of that game. You have to change the rules completely. If they stuff the courts and you say, well, we should stuff the courts more, all you're doing is setting up them stuffing the courts even more. But if you then say, well, they stuff the courts term limits, you know, do something like that that just changes changes the the entire battleground. That's about the only way you can actually get any real change. And that's why I'm like, no filibuster or go back to what we had. No, I think we the new rule is you create a filibuster that is not what we had. And that's the it's only through those kind of change the the battlefield that you're ever going to be successful with this particular group of folks. And by that, I mostly mean McConnell. I hear what you're saying. I'm on team burn it down. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I feel like the burning it down uh, is just a situation where you spread the gas everywhere and then some election happens and then you hand him a match. <laughs> like that's that's basically how the filibuster thing worked in the first place. You know what? I, I didn't want to get rid of it, but I'm going to get rid of it to get a few of these judges in. And I think it should have been a, the first alert to it was when Harry Reid did that. And McConnell's response was not to go on TV and denounce it, but to go, well, OK. No, I think the problem then this is a Democratic problem. I think the problem is that sometimes we do spread gasoline around, but we don't have the stones to light the fucking match. And I think that coming out of the Trump era, what I want to see is more match lighting. The gas has been spread. The other side, we know how they're going to play. And it's time for the Democrats to start fighting this fire with fire. They want to pack the courts? No, no, no. Well, I'll pack the courts. I'll pack the courts with 10 fucking people. They want to come over the top and go to 20 when they have the next chance. Then when I have the next chance, I'll go to 30 and we'll keep playing this damn game until the other side agrees that we're going to follow some rules. Yeah, I mean, and that's that never then happens. And it and more importantly, it feeds the kind of narrative that they uh, love to spread, which is a cynicism that we they're just like, we're both like each other. Uh, they they really thrive on the idea that the Democrats aren't or, or liberals generally are not an alternative to them. It's just well, they're just doing the same thing we are. It normalizes what they do. It's a way in which they can spread kind of a disaffected, which is really they have because of the demographics of the country. They can win on cynicism and people and apathy, people just saying, hey, politics, I mean, they're all doing the same thing. They're all fighting. And I, I don't know that getting those voters out of the system is actually a win for them, whereas it's a general loss for Democrats who need, need those votes. So that's a large part of the, the worry with that sort of a, approach. OK, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Right, right, right. I mean, I understand. Like we've talked before that we've come to an impasse where we know that my position and we know that you're wrong and we just have moved on from that. And we've managed to do the show anyway. Because we're professionals. Right. I mean, that's the thing. Um, speaking of professionals, uh, it's been a couple of weeks now, but how do you like in basketball this season? We're not going to talk about that. Mm. I, I wanted to bring up something controversial. 
So thanks for listening. You should be reading Above the Law. You should be subscribed to the show. You should be giving the show reviews, stars, and writing things. It helps the algorithm know that you're out there and engaged. If you write just a quick, this is fun, they have good insights, or, you know, I love when they fight with each other, whatever it is, that all helps because... Apple uses that and other podcasting services use that to increase your position in the world of legal podcasts. So that's a good place to be. You should be following us on Twitter. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice. Uh, Be sure to check out this long form piece that we've actually been talking about in the nation when it comes out, because that's where you'll get the, the full scoop. And you should listen to other podcasts. The Legal Talk Network has a whole panoply of shows. And And uh, we have uh, the Jabot, which uh, Catherine Rubino hosts. And with that, I think I've talked about all the various things we need to pitch. Oh, and other than thanks again to Smith AI for sponsoring. And that's that. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.